This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Buffalo's got a spirit talking proud, talking proud. Listen up and hear it talking proud, talking proud. All right, fans of my podcast, or at least those out there who are tolerating it. What's going on? How you doing? Welcome to episode number 233, Talking Buffalo Podcast. I want to thank everyone, as always, to start here for listening and for downloading and supporting the show. Really means a lot to me. If you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, please take a quick minute. Go ahead and do that right now. Rate and review, all that fun stuff. It really, truly helps me. Continue to grow this podcast. Last Friday, I had Joe Miller on from Buffalo Fanatics, and that was a really good episode. Got a lot of great feedback on that. I always encourage people to send me their feedback. Send it to me on Twitter, at Pat Moran Tweets, or you can email the podcast at Talking Buffalo Podcast. Whether it's something you liked, something that you didn't like, it's always useful. As for today, I'll tell you what, man. I love, 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 love having episodes like today. They're my favorite ones to do far and away. They're the ones that truly make me enjoy having a podcast because it's not always enjoyable, to be completely honest with you. They're the interviews that I get to do that make any nuance or inconvenience or sacrifice that comes with doing two shows a week well worth it. Uh, They're the ones that I don't care about the stats when it comes to episodes like this. I can look in a few days and honestly, I really don't care if there's one download or if there's a billion downloads. Doesn't make it any less enjoyable for me to do. And as for the guests, let's start here. So long before Jarius Bird made Bird's the Word a very popular song among Bill's Mafia in 2009, when as a rookie, Jarius had nine interceptions, completely took the NFL and Western New York by storm. His father, Gilbert, had long been one of the NFL's best defensive backs for the San Diego Chargers. Um, So much so, in fact, that by the time his career ended, he was a multi-time All-Pro corner, uh, the Chargers' all-time leader in interceptions with 42, which is a record that still stands to this day. And he's been a member of the Chargers Team Hall of Fame since 1998, 22 years ago. But what really makes a long-form chat that I had with Gil Bird, which I'm going to play for you coming up in just a minute, so enjoyable for me personally, is that it took me back to a time where being a fan in the NFL in the 1980s during that explosive offensive era, it was just so much fun. But beyond just the football part, talking to Gil Bird 
I legitimately, and I'm not just saying this because I don't say this stuff lightly. I feel like I was getting a free education throughout the course of this interview. The stories that he tells are just incredible, whether it's about football, education, life, all that stuff. Uh, to me, Gilbert, without question, one of the more candid, forthright interviews that I've had on this podcast, just no BS from him whatsoever. And you could sense that by listening to him. And we go through his life, his career, his son, his coaching, much more um, from growing up, never even had played football before until he was 12 years old. He was actually into judo, karate as a kid, only started playing football because family members, uncles played the sport and he wanted to be able to get more involved in family conversation. So that's why he started playing. By the time he got into high school, sophomore year, he was a star, one of the better players in the city. But as a senior, he was only five foot six. And because of that, his size, no scholarship offers. Ended up going to San Jose State. And you want to talk about perseverance again. A kid, five, six, goes to college. Five years later, he becomes a first-round draft pick. And not just any first-round draft pick, by the way. He became a first-rounder in what was, in my opinion anyway, the greatest NFL draft in the history of the draft, 1983. We all know a lot of the big names from the first round. Jim Kelly, for Buffalo Bills fans, of course. John Elway. Dan Marino. Eric Dickerson, Daryl Green, Bruce Matthews, and Gil Bird. He's another one. So just a, a great, honest conversation. And it's not all roses throughout his career. Gil's very honest. He talks about, frankly, sort of being a bust early in his career, his first few years in the NFL, his struggles. He bounced around between corner position, safety, back to corner. Self-admittedly, wasn't playing up to his standards, wasn't playing well. And he talks about how it took an injury to another player to kind of really change his fortunes. And then again, he went on to become a star. Uh, we talk about him playing out what was frankly an overall pretty weak defense in San Diego during those days. I mean, it was Eric Correale, Dan Fouts, Kellen Winslow. They were known for offense. And we hit on that, his frustration over not winning more throughout his career. Uh, we talk about, like I said, his son, Jarius, the motions as a father. When his kid got drafted by Buffalo in 2009, having maybe the greatest rookie season in Buffalo Bills history, uh, what it's like to be the father of a kid who made the Pro Bowl three times in his first five years with Buffalo. Uh, we talk about his coaching career, six stops in the NFL, including Buffalo in 2017. He got fired after just one season, and that was despite coaching what was one of the best performing secondaries in the NFL that year. You had Trey White as a rookie, EJ Gaines, who was really good in 2017. Hopefully he'll be good this year, but he was definitely good in 2017. And it was the first year of having Hyde and Boyer, one of the best safety tandems in the NFL, still is to this day. One of the, again, one of the best secondaries, but he got let go after just one year. He has thoughts on that. Uh, Sean McDermott, what his thinking was at that time, going in another direction as well as thoughts on Leslie Frazier, somebody that he's pretty close to. But today, this interview, and this is why I love it so much, is beyond way more than just football. Gil takes the time, he talks about the importance of church, uh, the difference between racism and being prejudiced, and how it is a big difference between the two. Speaks on leadership and inclusion, just so much more. And of course, 
We do have our little fun fact finale that I like to have with all my guests as well. That comes up at the end. Just really good stuff with one of the great players in NFL history. Certainly one of the better defensive backs ever. Uh, Me, personally, I felt entertained and educated by a lot of his stories. and get really good stories. Hopefully, you're going to as well. I just love having the opportunity to have these types of conversations. They're my favorite. So, without further ado, here it is. My chat with former San Diego Chargers great. And I guess if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, first and foremost, you're going to call him Jerry's Bird's dad. I'm talking, of course, about Gilbert. All right, my guest today is a former star defensive back with the San Diego Chargers. During his 10 years with the Chargers, he racked up 42 interceptions and was inducted into the Chargers Hall of Fame in 1998. One of the better defensive backs to play the game and had a pretty extensive coaching career as well, including a year with the Buffalo Bills. Younger Bills fans probably know his son much better, but Gil Bird's one of the best to do it. What's up, Gil? How you doing? Hey, Patrick. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. And I'll tell you what, before we go back to the beginning, I'm going to kind of keep the same format, discuss your early life and your career, give fans an opportunity to know more about you. One of the things that you do and that you've done for quite a while is, is speak to people on important topics like leadership and teamwork, diversity, inclusion whether it's church or corporate America, you speak on how to be victorious when it comes to racial inequalities that exist in today's world. Like, what's your approach on how you do that? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked me that, uh, Patrick. You know, in today's uh, environment that we live in, for me, it really starts with, you know, generational teaching. Uh, this is not a, an issue that's going to go away overnight, but it's something that has to be addressed right now. Uh, My personal belief is that it starts to me within the church. It starts with the value systems that you have uh, within those of us who call ourselves Christians. Uh, You know, still the most segregated hour in America has been talked about as being Sundays, and it's still that way. And so I really believe if we don't get our act together on Sunday, it's going to be hard to live it out Monday through Saturday. And so my thing is the very principles that I've made uh, people who go to church love the game of football on Sundays, dealing with teamwork, dealing with leadership, dealing with diversity and inclusion, which you see every Sunday on the football field, to take those principles now, and you have to inject those into the church on Sunday as well. And when you do that, it's going to help when you when I go in and talk to a corporation, an executive, an individual, those principles are all the same. But why do you have those three things in sports? Teamwork, leadership, diversity, and inclusion. Why do you see guys of different socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, fighting for each other and not having issues with a lot of things that we have issues with today? Now, don't get me wrong, it's not 100% perfect you know, within the world of athletics and being a player. Um, But there's less of it. Why is that? There's a formula uh, that I believe that I've experienced that answers those questions. And we should pull that into the church, what will then go into homes, what will then go into businesses, which then goes into society. And so I'm using those principles of Sunday 
in the NFL and bringing it into Sunday morning within the churches. Before we start talking about like your personal life and your career, which again, one of the better NFL careers ever, I need to ask you, like when you see everything that's going on in today's world, I know this feels very rhetorical, so I apologize for that, but how difficult no. is it as a, as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a son, as everything to see everything that's going on in this world today. And it's just, it's, it's just crazy. And, you know, these are things that have been going on for a long time, but it just feels like now more than ever, everybody's seeing it for better or for worse. Well, you know, it breaks my heart, uh, Patrick, to see all this stuff going on. Um, because I'm a grandfather, and I uh, I feel I yearn for my grandson to grow up in a better environment. Yeah. I think people understand this. You know, there's a difference in racism and prejudice. You know, racism for me is taught. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the 18th, hundreds and slavery back in the 1960s, fights for civil rights and things like that. People were taught to hate somebody else because of the color of their skin. Well, now, do I think racism has totally been eradicated in the 21st century? No, no, not at all. But I do believe that there are fewer families teaching people and youngsters to hate somebody because of the color of their skin. It still exists, but not to the same extent. Right. Prejudice for me is a lack of knowledge. I still believe because of the fears we've had over the years, because of um, the uncertainty surrounding different races and how they're perceived, that we all have prejudice and prejudice is a lack of knowledge. We, we just don't have a good knowledge of our neighbors based on their ethnic backgrounds, based on their races. And so we still stay separated, not because we've been taught not to like someone, but we stay separated because we have a lack of knowledge now that we have to get over. And so, you know, I've seen it over and over again, um, but I do hurt. I do see what's going on in society, and I think people don't realize that whether you believe it or not, these philosophies, these ways of thinking, they're passed on from generation to generation. You may not think you're mentoring somebody. You may not think you're passing on a philosophy to somebody, but you are based on what you say and don't say and based on what you do and don't do. So... We're in the situation now in our society because generations have been mentored consciously and subconsciously, and we're just seeing it act out right now. It's just got to a point where it's just a boiling point, and everybody's just tired of it. But this is what we have, and I am hopeful. Most people are not excited about what's going on. Really, I'm excited about what's going on because the hope is in where we are right now. And today, the hope is that we are bringing this to the forefront. The hope is that we're, we're at another point of a reckoning in our society, in the world, in the way we view each other as human beings. So I'm excited. I really am. Not discouraged, but excited. Okay. I definitely want to circle back to this topic because it's very important. Now, you were born and raised in the San Francisco area. What, was, what are like your most prominent memories 
of your childhood, being born and raised around there? Like, what were you into as a kid? Were you always into football, even as a youngster? Like, what else were you into, a young Gilbert? Well, young Gilbert, I was at six years old. Um, I started my, uh, I would think, athletic career. I was in judo. And so I was in judo from age six to about 12, 13. Oh, wow. Um, point where I was uh, pretty close to being a black belt in judo uh, at that time. Uh, my father was a policeman in San Francisco for over 20 years. Oh, mm. Athletic league, I joined, had a great time doing that. Uh, I wasn't allowed to play football until I was 12 years old. The rhyme and reason for that, nothing other than my father just believed I needed to mature more mentally, physically, emotionally before I started hitting my head. And I really wasn't interested uh, in football before that. And my family, my father has uh, 12 siblings, and he's from the South, born in Mississippi, uh, raised in really New Orleans, Louisiana, where he met my mom. But when my, when my family got together, when my, my uncles got together, the only thing they would talk about was football. So at an early age, they talk about football. I had a couple uncles that went to USC and played football for them. One uncle that went played, you know, a while for the Los Angeles Rams uh, as a lineman, just, you know, one or two years, something like that. But they all talked football and loved football. So for me, I was in judo, and that was my sport of choice early on. But as I got older, I realized, you really get in a conversation with my uncles, I need to play football. And so I got into football just as a way of being able to get involved in the family conversations more than anything else and really didn't fall in love with the game uh, until I really got into it and started to understand it years later. Now you went to Lowell High School in Frisco. You were an all-city running back and also defensive back in 1978. I'm looking up the stats here. Let me ask you a question. Maybe it's a silly one, but I'm asking it anyway. When you're in high school, so you're a very good running back, you're a very good defensive back. Obviously you went on to play in the NFL as a defensive back, but in high school, what did you like more? Did you like playing offense or defense more? Well, I like playing offense more. Everybody wants to score. <laughs> you know, everybody wants to score. You want to you wanna blow kisses to the fans. Uh, when you're in high school, my wife kissed me all the time. <laughs> she uh, went to my high school championship football game, Turkey Day, we had it. And my wife and I have known each other since we were 13 years old. Oh, wow. So we go back a way and got engaged our sophomore year in college. But uh, in high school, yeah, everybody, it was always about you. You always wanted the attention to be put on you. It was always a selfish attitude. But you wanted the notoriety for you to be patted on the back. And sure, I wanted to play uh, offense. But not until I got into coaching and was around Lovey Smith that I really understand that uh, that principle of scoring should apply to defensive players as well. And so it's just an interesting dynamic. I wish I would have been taught some of the principles I, I'm teaching guys as a coach now. I wish someone would have been teaching me those principles in the high school, at Lowell High School, and my coaches. Um, because I just see football, I see uh, offense and defense totally different. But I enjoyed my time at Lowell. What was a better running back than defensive back, but had more potential at defensive back to be something special than I did at running back. So you, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. So you didn't start playing football until you were around 12. And like you said, you got into the sport so that you would be able to be included 
in the conversations, you went on to become a star player in high school. When did you know for sure that like you had the physical ability and the mental maturity to be able to play football at levels beyond just high school, like before you even got to college? Was there a point where you said, you know what, I could play this at beyond just high school? Well, Patrick, I believed I could play, but the reality of it was I didn't know that I was able to play until my sophomore year in college. I wasn't recruited out of high school. I was 5'6", 165 pounds, dripping wet as a high school senior. So I was just a small guy. I wouldn't recruit myself today if I was a college you know, D1 program mm-hmm. because I was small and there was no guarantee that I was going to grow. And I walked on at San Jose State. And after a year being on a scout team, no scholarship, my sophomore year is when I grew three inches, four inches, uh, and gained 20, 25 pounds. And now I became a physical specimen big enough now to say I can think I can play at this level. But I went to college as an unrecruited uh, uh, walk-on. Nobody wanted me. Wow. I didn't know that. I know you went to San Jose State. I didn't know that you were pretty much unrecruited as a walk-on. That just no, makes I was, I was unrecruited, and I wanted to prove that I could play. I wanted to prove that I could play. A funny story, I was um, my uncle at the time, I was in high school, was the um, – from what I understand, he was the head of the Alumni Association at USC, okay? And there was a prominent coach at USC at the time named Marv Gu. I think Marv Gu has since passed away. I hope I'm not speaking in there, but he is an older coach. And um, Marv Gu got my tape from my uncle, my highlight tape and everything. And so he told my uncle that, hey, your son, he's not USC, your, your uh, nephew is not USC material never be USC material. Uh, And that crushed me because I was a big USC fan because I had the uncles who always talked about USC at the time, just crushed. But that motivated me to not let somebody else dictate what my future was or would be. And so I said, well, I'm going to walk on and I'm going to prove everybody wrong. I'm going to prove. So it was not my athletic um, fortitude, my athletic ability that got me at San Jose State and got me to where I, I think, uh, performed well at San Jose State. It was my mental makeup and saying I had a dream, I had a vision, I was a competitor, and I wanted to prove people wrong. That's what got me to San Jose State, and I think that's what helped me to persevere through the discouraging times, because we all have discouraging times. We all have people that tell us we won't be able to do this. We all have people that says, look, this is not the logical way to go. This is the illogical way to go. But you know, everything in your being tells you that this is where you're supposed to be. I say for those listening today, go for it. Go for it, because you never want to look back on your life and say, I wish I would have. Because I could have not played football And then I look back now and say, man, I wish I would have. What would have happened? But either way, knowing that I took it to the last degree, if I didn't make it, I would never look back and say, I wish I would have tried to play football. I know I wasn't good enough if I hadn't made it. Well, I'll tell you, you go from a five foot six high school senior, and by the time you're done playing college, 
you go on to become a first-round NFL draft pick in the 1983 draft, legendary draft. Talk about that in a second. But talk about the process leading up to the draft. Like, what was it like for you from the time you played your last college game until leading up to the 1983 draft? Like, what was that process like back in the, the early 80s? Now you have the combine and everything's on TV and all these private workouts, all this stuff. What was it like back in your day, the process leading up to the NFL draft for you? Okay, I'm, I'm going to go back um, to my sophomore year real quick, and I don't want to bore you uh, with these stories, Patrick. No, they're not boring um, at all. But, 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 you know, the shy guy that I am, you can tell that I don't like talking. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to But in my sophomore year, I was rated as one of the top defensive backs in the country. Um, I, I was a redshirt freshman, played a little bit, came my sophomore year, started, uh, made a name for myself. My junior year, I blew my knee out. Major injury, uh, ACL construction back in, you know, 1980, what was it, 80, 81, whatever it was back then. So uh, that was a major injury. Would I come back? Would I play? Would I even be the same player? Come back my senior year, I play with a cast on my right knee, and I break my hand in like the third or fourth game of the season. So I have a, a soft cast on my hand. I'm playing with a, a knee brace on my right knee, and then I have a neck collar because I hurt my neck. Uh, so I look like a linebacker out on the corner position. The one good thing about that, people threw the ball my way, and I was able to, to stand up and make plays. So now the season ends, and I am a big question mark. I'm a big question mark because I have these injuries I played but will I be well enough now to play in the NFL? So I get calls from teams, and the San Diego Chargers was one of the teams that called, and they said, you know, we don't draft people in the first round with your injury. Uh, we may draft you later on, but we just want to see if you're healthy. I had graduated in December of my senior year. I was a fifth-year senior. And I was working at a uh, aerospace firm in the Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California. So I had a job lined up already. But as far as the teams, during that time, there was no combine. So there were like three or four different combines, if you will. So there was one, I think, uh, Blesto, which are like the Bills, the Lions, the Eagles, the Saints. I mean, it, it was an acronym for a couple of teams. The New York Jets flew people individually um, for workouts. Um, so I had about two or three um workouts and flew in for teams to evaluate me and things like that. Then you had these uh, all-star games. You had the blue-gray game. You had the east-west game. You had the senior bowl game. And so I was invited to all of them because everybody wanted to see if my knee would hold up. So I played in the in the uh, blue-gray game, uh, which is in Alabama, so I forgot the uh, not Mobile, Montgomery, or something. I forgot where it was in Alabama. Then, you know, the, the East-West Shrine game uh, was in California, Palo Alto. In the Senior Bowl, I played in the first two, did well, didn't play with the knee brace on, and I opted out of the Senior Bowl because I said the only thing they can do now, meaning the scouts and the teams, can find something wrong with me. Right. I've done everything they've asked. I've gone to all these combines. I've played in all these all-star games. Uh, now I'm just going to sit back and see what happens, but I'm healthy now. So it was a long process. 
you know, I like the way the NFL does it now. You bring the guys in for three, four days. Every team looks at them. I mean, that's the way it should have been. But back in the day, there wasn't anything structurally like we have now. So it was a hard grueling process. You had to stay in shape. Uh, you had to be ready at a moment's notice to, to fly somewhere, to, to, to get a physical, to work out for a team. But it was an exciting, exciting time. Did you have a good indication that the Chargers were going to be the team to draft you? Did that kind of come out of nowhere for you? Now, I know you said they talked to you earlier in the process, checking in on your health, saying they weren't going to draft you in the first round originally, or, or that they don't draft players with injury history. Obviously, that didn't hold on to be true. But was it just that one or other teams, from your memory anyway, that kind of seemed interested in taking you early on? Did you remember, like, you know, I might end up going here or there? Well, uh my sports information director, who I still keep in contact with to this day, there was only one other team that really showed interest. The Chargers actually flew down, met me in Palo Alto, because, you know, they were just in San Diego at the time, came to my work. We had lunch, talked to me. But the team that was asking for information on me uh, quite a bit but never really called me was the Chicago Bears. Hmm. So sports information director really believed that, hey, Chicago Bears are the ones asking for all this information, bio, background, headshots, pictures, all this type of stuff on you. Uh, he thought I would go there, but nobody thought it, I would be a first-round draft choice. And so uh, that in and of itself was the biggest surprise of the day. So you got John Elway and Dan Marino, Jim Kelly, uh, Eric Dickerson, Bruce Matthews, Daryl Green, so many more. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least talk about this class. Probably the greatest first-round draft class in the history of the NFL. What does it mean to you to be part of a very special and unique class? Because, again, I mean, the names I just read off yourself, it's, just, it's incredible. All in one draft. Well, well, notwithstanding my name, I'm going to take you to task, uh, Patrick. And, not, and the one word you used was probably. I'm going to be the homer and say it is. Yes. <laughs> Because you know what's special about that class? What was special about that class was that they were all we were all fifth year seniors. That was the last class of true fifth year seniors. Because after that, you started having guys who could, you know, um, uh, qualify or, or apply to go to the draft. You know, after uh, their three years out of high school, I forgot what it was, or after their junior year, four years in college. But that's when it all started. And I think we were the last true class of fifth year seniors. I mean, and so you can see what happened. You take this class, what they did in the NFL, I think because a lot of us, we were more mature. We stayed in college longer. We honed our skills longer. Uh, we got a lot of the, the immature mistakes out of us, not just on the field, but off the field. I think we were just more developed as, as young men and able to handle what came with being in the NFL. Well, now you got kids who are 19, not really 19, but 20 years old, maybe 21 years old, coming out, chasing the money, but they haven't matured from the neck up as much as they could have had they stayed in college a little bit longer. Uh, so it's just an exciting class, and um, yeah, I think that's why and what makes that class so great is we were 50-year seniors. What was your instant reaction when you got drafted by the Chargers? You're a California kid, born and raised in California. You go to college in California, and you get drafted by a team in California. What was like your instant reaction from what you can remember? Oh, I can remember. It was great. I, mean, I still remember just jumping up. And, because, see, there were uh, at San Jose State back in 1981 and in 1982, 
uh, we had uh, first-round draft choices from San Jose State. I think the first one was, I want to say maybe uh, receiver Mark Nichols was an 81, and then I think Gerald Wilhite was an 82, the running back he played for Denver. And so I would talk to Gerald, and people knew I'd get drafted. They just didn't know how high because my injury history. So Gerald said, hey, on draft day, you know, take your, take a suit with you because you get drafted in the first round. They're going to fly you out, this, that, and the other. So although I didn't think I would get drafted in the first round, I hoped I would. And I brought a suit with me, me and my fiancé at the time. My wife was my fiancé at the time. We went to Cal- went to um, uh, down to San Francisco where we're from, 50 miles away. Uh, she's from was born and raised in Daly City. And um, we went over to my parents' house. And really, right before the draft had already started, and we woke up and getting dressed in the morning, stuff like that. And I remember the Chargers had three picks, and they got to the 22nd pick. And we had just barely gotten situated and sat down good, and we had heard the names of the previous draft choices. But then when, when Gilbert was called, it, the house just went crazy. I mean, that, that is a memory you will never, ever forget, uh, just because of the extent. And it was so unexpected because back then I didn't get a call. You know how they say they call these players first mm-hmm. and then the players know the pick that's coming up, if they're going to be in that pick. I had no indication. I just heard my name. That was it. Oh, wow. So who are a few players now that you're a charger, you get into the locker room, who are a couple guys in that locker room or maybe on the other side of the field that you played against in your very early days that really helped mold you into the type of player that you become in the NFL? I think the competition level with San Diego, with Eric Coriel, uh, I was able to develop because I saw the best passing offense in the league uh, when I first got in there. Dan Fouts uh, at the hound throwing the ball. You see Chuck Muncie, a uh, great running back, laying the ball. You have Kellen Winslow, one of the greatest tight ends ever played the game. Charlie Joyner, who was the all-time leading receiver for so many years before he retired. Wes Chandler. Uh, was receiver as well. So you just take those individuals right there uh, at the skill position. I went up against them all the time. And I think that really helped me um, to develop ultimately into the player I was, I became at the end of my career. Truth be told, not that I've been lying all this time, that as a, as a rookie, my first three or four years in the league, I was thought of as a bust. I was thought of as a bust. I went from corner after my first two years to safety, played safety, bounced around, and went back to corner. And that was, looking back on it, the best time in my life to help me develop as a player. But it was hard because I was a first-rounder and didn't perform well my first couple years in the league. Yeah. That really hurt. I'll tell you what, I'm remembering, you're kind of taking me down memory lane a little bit. So in like your rookie year, 83, let's say the first couple years, 83, 84, I'm 12, 13 years old. And I remember so well watching those Charger teams on TV. And I just remember saying, win or lose, this was a fun team that you had to watch. It was kind of like, you know, the NBA teams that just run and gun. You never, they might win or lose, but like they're going to lose 140 to 138. It was kind of where charges were with that offense. I mean, you just mentioned a lot of those guys. It was just so much fun to watch. And you talked about your first couple of years. You kind of humbled a little bit. Like you said, they were even throwing that bus label around early in your career. It reminds me of a Buffalo Bills, a former first rounder, Eric Moulds, who didn't do much his first couple of years as a wide receiver, former first round pick. 
And I remember hearing the same things. And then he kind of exploded and became one of the best receivers in the NFL. Kind of the same case with you, because again, your career might have started out slow, bouncing around a little bit, but you played for the Chargers for a decade. And by 1988, you were uh, an All-Pro. In fact, you were an All-Pro four years. Talk about your, like, your career growth as a player once you were able to get over that hurdle and learn the game a little bit, the type of player that you became, like you said, maybe a bust in your own mind, at least very early on. But that certainly wasn't the case as you got more into your career. You became one of the better defensive backs to, to play in the NFL. Well, I had to understand uh, two things. One, you have to be a student of the game to be successful. You just can't play on athletic ability because every week you have a top opponent. You know, in college, uh, depending on what level you play, what, what um, division you play in, you may not have NFL competition that you're going against every week. You may have one or two teams or one or two individuals that may be NFL quality and you play against them, you dominate them uh, or hold your own against them. Then the other two, other eight teams in the season, you dominate, but they're not quality players. And so that's what you run into. So being a student of the game was the first thing I had to understand. And then secondly, I had to understand that those teams that I played against, they were studying and breaking me down uh, more than I was studying and breaking down myself. I had to do a self-scout and know that, well, where are my weaknesses? How can I play to my strength 80% of the time and not be playing to my weakness 80% of the time? Because these teams know my weakness. And so once I did those two things, studied more and understood that teams were studying me and doing a self-scout, I think that helped me in my growth process and like I said, those first four years of bouncing around from left corner to right corner, strong safety to free safety, helped me to get a total picture of the secondary, which I hadn't had. I was just strictly a corner, played corner, focused on corner, and didn't concern myself with the safety position and what they had to know. But once I knew what they did and how my view changed based on where I was lined up and how my different keys changed, uh, the game just became different to me. Uh, and I was able now to perform at a level that athletically I probably shouldn't have performed at because I wasn't a fast corner. I was just a quick, smart, tough guy, but I didn't have all-out blazing speed. Now you become the Chargers' all-time leader in interceptions, still stands today, 42. And in 1998, you became, or you got inducted, I should say, into the Chargers Hall of Fame. Looking back at all that, what does that mean to you now to be a team Hall of Famer, like I said, the all-time leader in interceptions, a member of the 48th and 50th anniversary teams. That's, it's got to mean a lot to you. Well, it does. It really does. Um, it means that um, I was fortunate enough to reap the fruits of my labor. And I was also fortunate enough not to be hit by the injury bug because that's just a part of the game. Sure. And this, this game your career can be shortened in one play. So that's why I like to, to tell uh, these young kids when I'm coaching them that you have to play each play like it is going to be your last because it very well may be. And that a lot of times these kids today don't appreciate and understand that you're just not competing against um, all the left corners on when I was at the University of Illinois, at the University of Illinois. 
you're not just competing. So when you become a starter, it's not like, well, I'm automatically going to NFL. Well, it's not just against all the left corners or defensive backs in the Big Ten. It's not just against all of the defensive backs in Division One, because there's Division One, One AA, FBS, uh, Division Two, II, Division Three, and it's not just in California. It's or in Illinois. It's the whole country. It's the whole United States of America. So for kids to grasp that that's their competition. There's some things that you can't control. I can't control a guy that's been. I'm in Illinois, and a guy's in California that's 6'1", 190 pounds, one runs like a deer. I can't control that when I'm 5'10", 195 pounds, and runs a, I run a 4'6", this guy runs a 4'3". Can't control that. What I can control is my production, knowing my defense, being a student of the game, and playing to my strength, and then letting the chips fall where they're made. The problem is most guys, they don't look at all those things. They just look at, well, Man, I'm 5'10", I'm, I'm on a full six, maybe a high 4'5", uh, I'm a starter in the Big Ten, and I may have had one interception last year, two interceptions, had a couple big hits, maybe recover fumble, and man, I am going to the NFL. Doesn't work like that. Right. So, um, I don't know, being that Charger Hall of Famer, I love that, and I'm, a, I'm proud of that just because of all that I've had to overcome and how fortunate I was because another thing is I can tell you three or four names of three or four guys in my career, just in college alone, that were better, talented, better DBs than I was in college and in pro, but because in college they flunked out of school or they got injured or they got dismissed from the team because of what they did off the field issues. And in the pro, same thing, uh, I was about to be a backup, a guy who was a better player than me got injured or else I would have never gotten back on the field after my fourth year because the team was headed in a different direction. They had already made the decision. You're going to be a backup, fight in that position or not be here. Hmm. But because the guy got hurt right before the season training camp, now I become the starter again. And then I took off after that and never looked back. So there's things beyond your control, but you have to take care of what you can't take care of. As a football fan, one of my favorite football players ever was Junior Seau, and you got to play with him his first three years. I was just always fascinated by him as a player and, of course, everything that's happened since then, too. What was he like on and off the field? One of the most intense football players I've ever seen. I have a high school football son myself, and the intensity that Junior plays with, that's something that I've always, I want my son to play with. I've shown him countless tapes just the way the guy played the game. Like, what was he like on and off the field? Junior was uh, on the field as intense as he was. He, he, he loved the game of football. And see, all the great players, they don't just play for the money. See, the generation now just plays, I want to play well enough that I can make the big money and then I'm out. Well, the great players are one who end up in Canton uh, with a bust in Canton, Ohio. That's Hall of Fame. All those guys who don't play for the money per se, but know the money comes with the greatness that's established on the field. So uh, Aeneas Williams, who's in the Hall of Fame, a defensive back, uh, says you can't get wet without the water. The water is just apply yourself, be competitive, do all that you need to do and dominate your opponent. The wet is I'm going to get paid. 
So you get paid once you get the water. The waters do what you need to do. Junior just loved the game, played with the passion. And off the field, he was just as giving as he was as passionate on the field. Um, and it's just a tragedy of what happened to him. But those are the risks inherent to playing this game. But as far as a player, as far as leading by example, um, they don't come any better than Junior Seau. Now, kind of switching gears here, I'm a fan of like seeing these silly or fun random stats. And when it comes to you, one that really stuck out to me is that I mentioned John Elway before, one of the greatest NFL quarterbacks in history. You seem to have his number better than anyone else did because you had 42 career interceptions. Nine of them came off John Elway. That's a pretty cool stat to have in, uh, in your arsenal. Well, it is. You know, it's interesting. I played against um, John in, in college. Uh, every year we were in college. His dad, Jack Elway, was my coach in college. So there was some San Jose Stanford rivalries. Never intercepted John uh, in college. We did have uh, the opportunity to beat Stanford twice, uh, two years in a row, which is the first time San Jose State has done that. I don't think San Jose State has done that since. And then we got in the pros. We were obviously in the AFC West, the old AFC West. Um, and we played two times a year. And I think that's why I had more opportunities to intercept John because I played him more twice every season. But understand, uh, I got nine interceptions or eight, wherever it was, off of John. Uh, that means he was throwing at me. And that means he threw at me because he had some success as well. <laughs> Dude, you're too, Gil, you're too humble, man. I like the stat. Let's just leave that stat as being a cool stat. I know he went at you, but you picked him off nine times. So you had success against him too. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) You said, I'm sorry, your last statement. Could you say that again, Pat? Oh, I said, you know, he might've had some success against you thrown at you, but quite apparently you had nine picks. So you had plenty of success against him as well. Oh yeah. I don't deny that fact. I don't deny that fact now, um, but I had a great time, great competition. Um, man, John Elway is one of my one of my all time favorite uh, quarterbacks just because of his athleticism, his arm carrying that Denver team to, I think it was what six Super Bowls or something like that yeah. before he won the last. So yeah, he just had an amazing career. Yeah, for sure. Now I got you on the Talk of Buffalo podcast, so I got to talk a little bit of Buffalo here, and I feel like. Few people can relate to the Buffalo Bills going on a 17-year playoff drought than you. Um, so you had, no, as a player, no, no playoffs for, from your rookie year in 83 through your last year in 92. Now the Chargers went 11-5 and five and made the playoffs in your last year. Obviously, you've had a very good career, distinguished career. You're a Chargers Hall of Famer, all-time leader in interceptions. I would, and I'm guessing here, so let me know by all means if I'm wrong, because I very well could be, but... Probably not winning more games would be the most frustrating part of your career that you weren't on a team that was able to get to the playoffs and win more games. No question um, that in a team sport, that's what it's all about. It's all about um, winning games and as a team, being able to say you're a champion. And so that hurts the most from my perspective as a former player, uh, not having gotten to the playoffs only but one time in my career. And, but then the year we did it, 
we were the first team in NFL history to start the season 0-4 and, and then make the playoffs at 11-5. and And we were the first team to ever do that. So we even had to climb a, a steep mountain just to, for me to experience the playoffs the one year that I did. It was a great experience, but that hurts. And I was part of a defense that we didn't do our job. Because like you said, it was like the running gun offense or, or – uh, in, in, in football or in basketball, running shoot or whatever you called it, in basketball, up and down the field, winning games, you know, losing games 135 to 138. Well, if you're a defensive player, <laughs> that doesn't bode well for your career, right? That, yeah. So, they're an exciting team to see play, but they're losing games 40 to 38, 42 to 35. Well, if I'm a defensive player and I did get looks from the offensive players in the locker room, like, man, what are you guys doing? <laughs> we're putting up phenomenal numbers and we're still losing. And so that was the biggest uh, heartbreak for me, yeah, not winning more games and, and not contributing to winning you know, more games. Yeah, you know, it was funny. As I was asking that question, you know, I started thinking in the back of my mind, I'm like, I feel like he'll probably would have won a lot of games 14 to 10 as opposed to, you know, 48 to, to 45 or whatever. But so now your relationship with the Buffalo Bills, it's a combination, both father and coach. First, let's talk about the father part. Your son, Jarius, was drafted by Buffalo um, second round in 20 or 2009. Talk about your emotions as a father when you heard his name getting called and that he's going to the NFL. He's made it and then he's going to be playing for the Buffalo Bills. What was like your emotions at that time as a dad? There is no greater joy for a father, for a parent, to see your child uh, exceed and accomplish something that they've worked for diligently. The work that Jairus put in at Oregon, the individual working out he put in, um, the attention to detail, the sacrifices that he made if we were to all come to a point where he was drafted by Buffalo, which is awesome. And then Perry Fuel at the time was the defensive coordinator. Uh, I believe Perry was there at the time Jarrett was drafted. And I had worked with Perry at Chicago. I had assisted Perry uh, as a secondary coach in Chicago for a few years before Perry left. And so to know the type of man he was going to be coached by was exciting in and of itself. It, it was just a special time for us to relive the time when I got drafted, his excitement on his face. Um, it, was, it was special. I'll never forget that, as, uh, forget that as well. Well, we talked about your transition into the NFL and that it took you a couple of years to really find your way in before you became an all-pro defensive back. Now, with your son, it's a completely night and day different thing, man. So this guy... This kid spends five years with the Bills. His very first year, his rookie year, he has nine interceptions. It was one of the best, again, as a Buffalo Bills fan, I watched every snap of every game. One of the best rookie seasons to this day that I've ever seen in my life. Feels like an overnight thing where he became one of the team's most popular players just as a rookie. Remember the whole Birds to Word, the song? It became huge in Buffalo. I'll never forget it. Only played 14 games that year, too. Uh, started 11 games as a rookie. Goes on three-time Pro Bowler. With the Bills, it's just, it ha I would imagine it's just got to be a really special time in your life to watch it unfold. To having him see him become, like like I said, just as a rookie. One of the best players in the NFL is a rookie. It was crazy. Well, it was. It, it, it was special. Um, you know, Jairus 
a special player, one of his biggest assets, just instinctive, understanding um, where the quarterback was going with the ball, taking tremendous angles, and, and having great hand-eye coordination and ability to catch the ball. See, people take that for granted. I mean, you've got to be able to catch the ball in really awkward positions, situations, and have a great focus uh, to intercept the ball uh, at any level. You have to do that. So to see Jairus succeed like that, and it was funny, you know, Jairus comes in and I only made two Pro Bowls, and then uh, Jairus' first year made his first one, and then he went on to make three, and he made his three, I think, in the first four years or five years of his Mm -hmm. career, and I made two in ten years. And so he's like, man, how many did you make again, Dad? How many How many was that? Too sweet. We had some fun with it, and we would. he would always compete because I know the things that I did in the NFL as far as interceptions and how many I had and all that type of stuff, Jair's competitor wanted to get more. You know, he wanted to be known as the best. If they had to start with beating his dad's records, yes, and he wasn't afraid. That's what makes Jared special. He's not afraid of competition. He's not afraid and wasn't afraid to embrace the fact that his father was a player, played in the secondary, and was deemed a good player. I'm going to outdo my dad. That, to me, is special because there's so many kids who crumble under that pressure of a successful parent. And so you, you, you can't uh, disregard the value and the mental makeup of a child that embraces uh, a parent's greatness and excels beyond that parent. How hard is it for a child to follow suit when his parent is as successful as you were? I'm sure there's lots of kids out there, lots of talented kids out there who had fathers who played in the NFL and the talent maybe was there, but maybe the mental makeup wasn't there and they didn't ultimately end up succeeding, maybe in part because of that pressure to have to live up to what their father did playing in the NFL. Well, yeah, I mean, but that's, that's just it. Uh, that's a lot of pressure to, to be in the same field and play the same position as your father did who was successful or as your mom did and, and, uh, as, as a female athlete and they were successful. That, that is a tremendous amount of pressure um, because people are looking at you and expecting a certain amount of greatness from you. The expectations for you are higher than the expectations for a child that doesn't have or didn't have that successful parent. Yeah. Um, when it comes to coaching, we talked about that a little bit. What first got you interested in coaching? You coached on six different NFL teams, including Buffalo, which we'll talk about in a second. And of course, now Illinois in college. Like, What got you interested in wanting to become a coach when your playing days were done? Well, the reality is I got into coaching because I had seen so many, in my eyes, bad coaches, and I'd been coached, in my eyes, by bad coaches. Cats who just were into dog cussing and really berating and belittling uh, players and, and not really teaching um, life skills while you're coaching, because that's been the one biggest gripe I've had. Coaches have, in the past, taught uh, players how to stand up uh, to competition, not back down. Um, somebody shows aggression to you, aggressive, aggression to you, you be aggressive. 
And then that same player that you're saying, don't back down. I want a dog on the field. I want you to attack and I want you to be aggressive. I want you to have this, this temper and be mean and don't take any, no mercy on the field. You get off the field and now you don't know how to deal with issues in your life, confrontation in your life. And so that same player that's good on the field is not a good human being off the field. And so I got into coaching because for me, I didn't want anybody coaching my sons that was just this crazy uh, coach who saw themselves as yeller, screamer, degrading. And I wanted to show my sons what I felt a good coach would look like. And so I started off coaching their Pop Warner team when they were just starting out in football and then helping out at their high school level. But the first couple of years, just being around and being their head coach, I want to expose them to the type of coaches that I wanted them to be around, the type of men that I wanted them to be around. And I think it started at their Pop Warner level. And so that's why I got in. And then as I got in, I stayed in and then got into the coaching at the, you know, the NFL level and doing some other things. But it started just because I wanted my kids to see a different type of coach. Now, you coached the Buffalo Bills defensive backs in 2017 under Sean McDermott, his first year with the Bills. I would assume looking back, it's a, a mixed bag of reactions because on one hand, you're relieved of duties after just that one season. and then But you look back and Trey White was a rookie, one of the best rookies in the NFL. Um, Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, who are still there now, one of the best safety tandems in the NFL. E.J. Gaines had a great year in 2017. Long story short, what I'm saying here is Buffalo had one of the better secondaries in the entire NFL, and it was the year the Bills finally broke the 17-year playoff drought. So it was a very successful year. And as I was doing some research for this interview, Gil, I'm looking back at, I'm Googling articles and stuff about, you know, when they made coaching changes, and I'm looking at the tone of the articles, and a lot of them were disbelief. Like, what the hell's going on? That was from the authors of some of the stories that I was reading, and like I said, in preparation for this. Looking back, what, what's your, your feelings on coaching the Bills, DBs in 2017 and everything that went down? I have nothing but, uh, but love. I have a great, great feeling about my time in Buffalo. My time in Buffalo, what did I do? I learned uh, a lot. I became a better coach uh, in Buffalo. I was exposed to a different defense in Buffalo. I experienced a, a uh, changing uh, of the guard in that getting the playoff drought off of the fans' backs uh, in Buffalo. So there's nothing but good memories, fond memories that I have of Buffalo. And I understand in the NFL that changes are made for different reasons. So when it, when it all boils down to it, Sean McDermott made a decision in the best interest in his eyes of the Buffalo Bills. That was what was best for the Buffalo Bills. And as a head coach, that is his choice. He has the ability to do that. But I have nothing but, but love and respect for the coaches there, especially Leslie Frazier, uh, who I knew from my days in Tampa. We played around the same era in the league and, and what he's done. So nothing but love, nothing but love, uh, because I know the industry. I know what happens in the industry. And guys get fired and have to change teams, not because they – their coaching was bad, but because it just wasn't the right time. It just, it just wasn't meant for them to be at a certain place. And that's it. 
no nothing more, nothing less. All right, fair enough. So before we end with the traditional fun fact finale, which admittedly is just a bunch of random silly questions I do with all my guests, I kind of want to circle back to the beginning of our chat. Some people have a passion for speaking and for education, for church, uh, teaching people. And it really feels like, as I've talked to you through this last hour, that is something that you're very passionate about. There's many great football players that have played the game, made their money, kind of rode off to the sunset and just, you know, they don't do anything after that, which is fine. But that's not you. You really do have a passion for teaching people. Again, and I'm not even just, football's just a tiny part of it. I'm talking about life. Like, do you, do you know how you developed this passion for, for speaking to people, whether, again, whether it's at church, whether it's corporate functions, which you do a lot of, just that passion inside of you to really enlighten other people. Where, where do you think that comes from? Well, I think it comes from the, uh, the grace and the mercy that God has shown me uh, in my life, the mentoring I've had as a Christian. Uh, when I first became a player in the National Football League, and uh, at the time, a young man named Sherman Smith was traded from the Seattle Seahawks to the San Diego Chargers, and the impact he had on my life for the year he was there and showing me what it meant uh, to be a godly man. And for me, it's, it's always about teaching. It's always about uh, making a difference. And as I've gotten to the fourth quarter of my life, I believe the fourth quarter is where you can really make a difference. I want to finish strong. We always talk about finishing strong. Players are told to finish strong on the field as they're working out in their classes, being a student. I want to finish strong in my life. I want to leave a legacy that's not wrapped up in just 42 interceptions and Charger Hall of Fame and all that stuff. Because if that's all I'm known for, then I believe, I believe that I've missed the boat. If people, when they remember Gil Bird, say, yeah, he was a good football player and he played for the Chargers. I wanted to be more. I wanted to be he was a godly man. And uh, what he focused on was finishing strong as a husband, as a father, and just as a man of God and mentoring and changing, changing the very thinking and philosophy of the church in regards to Sunday morning, in regards to uh, different racial and ethnic backgrounds who come from the same Bible, but yet don't know how to talk to each other, be in the same room with each other and worship together under the same God. That is what I want to be known for, finishing strong and making a difference because of all the mistakes, not all the victories and all of the successes I've had for the last 59 years, but the mistakes too, which have made me and shaped me into the man I am today. And I want to pass those, all of those things, the good and the bad, along to the next generation based on what the Bible uh, is telling me to do. I want to live it. I want to live it. Too, too many people say they know it, but don't actually live it. Yeah. And that's going to be how I want to finish strong. I almost feel silly now, ending with the fun fact finale, because it's so different than the tone of that, which is so important what you just said. But that's how we're going to roll. That's how we're going to finish it. These are just a handful of random fun questions I ask every guest who's featured on the podcast. Not a lot of deep thought required. Whatever the first thing that pops in your mind, that'll be your answer. You good with that? I'm good with it. All right, man, let's go. Favorite all-time athlete? 
Well, I'm not going to say a favorite all-time athlete. I would say uh, my favorite player that I really enjoyed in football was uh, Mel Blunt. Mel Blunt. Okay. Favorite city that you've had an opportunity to visit? Uh, I'm going to say La Quinta. That's in California out by uh, Palm Springs, Palm Desert. Uh, I have the fondest memories going out there when I was a player. Me and my wife used to go out there and just have our, our planning weekends, uh, which are filled with a lot of laughing, hugging, joking, kissing, crying, yelling. But we left there on the same page, which was the best thing about that time. Okay. What is your go-to snack? Like if you're having a sleepless night or you're really craving something that's probably bad for you and you're going to give in your temptations, you can have any snack or whatever. Like what's your go-to snack? Ice cream, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. <laughs> Mine too. Uh, is there a movie that you feel like you probably have rewatched more than in any other movie? Uh, yeah, there's two of them, but the one that I think of first is The Hunt for Red October. That's with Sean Connery, right? Sean Connery and Denzel Washington. Yep. Okay. I remember that. Yeah. Okay. And and the other one was the the, the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. I haven't seen that one. I know the movie. I haven't seen that, though. What would you consider your worst habit? You know, we always get you guys on here and talk about all the great things you've done on the field and in life. Like, what's your worst habit, though? Uh, My worst habit is uh, probably... I'm biting my fingernails, <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's worse or nervous habit, but it's, it's, it's biting the fingernails. Okay. Name a TV game show that if you were on it, you feel like you could potentially win, maybe even dominate. It could be a current game show. It could be a game show from the past. Is there one where you're like, I could win on this show? I would say that there's, there's no game show, uh, Patrick, that I would dominate that I think I'm good enough to get on and dominate, but there's one game show that is my all time favorite love it to death and that is jeopardy okay if you never made it in football let's say you went to san jose state and that's where you maxed out you never made it to the nfl it didn't work out for you what do you think you may have went on to do with your life i'm sure coaching could easily be an answer but is it or is it something else what do you think you would have done if if the nfl didn't happen for you Uh, at the time when i got drafted if i never got drafted i was working as a financial analyst uh, at an aerospace firm in Silicon Valley, I'd have probably been doing that, and and I got into real estate. I had I had gotten my real estate license as well, so I think I've been doing something finance or real estate um, at that time. Okay, second second last question here. Give us a fun fact about you that most people, may, maybe even friends of yours, might not know. Well, um, I would say a fun fact. A fun fact. Um. Well, one fun fact I think is I I, I detest uh, roller coasters. <laughs> uh, theme park, we're, we're not going on a roller coaster. And from an educational standpoint, I've, I think I've taken a couple of courses at uh, Wharton. And I am an arresty scholar from the course I've taken at Wharton through the NFL trust program uh, that they have set up for players. Oh, wow. That's cool. All right, last question here. It's the same one I always ask to end these interviews. I want you to name three either celebrities or historic people, whatever, don't matter, dinner guests from any era at any time. If you can have them over your house for dinner tonight, or a great spread, some food, maybe a couple of drinks, whatever have you, some conversation, three people 
Who would you have? Okay. Yeah, it is. But for me, it's 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 the biblical uh, men that I've read about in the Bible. Okay. And you know, I I know I will be spending an eternity with them, but I would, you know, obviously it would be Jesus, but I would also want a Paul because he really attacked and killed Christians and then became one. Uh, and then I would also like to say, I'll talk to uh, Abraham and Isaac. Why Abraham and Isaac is because Abraham was told that through his son, he would inherit the generation. His son would be the, that next leader. And then he was called to sacrifice his son. So what would have been going on in his mind? I got sacrificed my son. I think about that sacrifice my son. And then Isaac, because when he knew he was about to be sacrificed, why didn't he run? What made him so convinced that his dad was hearing, you know, from God and he was staying put and not questioning, not running, not fighting. The Bible doesn't tell us anything that he was doing like that, but was willing to obey what his father said, even when it didn't make sense. Those are just some interesting, yeah, just interesting people. I, I, I can't wait to, uh, would have loved to been back to ask them those questions, but one day I will be mm-hmm. when I'm in eternity. Yeah. I will be able to do that. All right, everybody. Great stuff. Follow or not follow because you're on Twitter. I'm going to give you the email address. I'm also going to put it in the show notes. It's gmgjbird at gmail.com, whether it's for speaking engagement opportunities or aspiring football players out there that might have some questions, just things about life. Reach out. He'll answer you. I'll tell you what, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I've done a lot of these interviews. I think this is episode 233, something like that. I feel like I got an education today, man. This was really uh, riveting stuff for me informational, entertaining. Thank you so much, man. It's always great to have somebody like you on this podcast. You bring so much to the table. Really appreciate you. Well, Patrick, it's been my pleasure. Uh, Thank you. And um, wish nothing but the best uh, for you and all of your followers. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for today. Very big thank you again, Gilbert. I tell you what, that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun for me personally. Very entertaining, very informative. Gilbert, everyone knows his son, Jarris, Buffalo Bills fans. But I'll tell you what, Gilbert, one of the best defensive backs in NFL history. Great thrill for me. So thanks again, Gil. Also want to thank today's show supporters, 26 Shirts and Sounds Assured. Guys, if you haven't done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast right now. Rate and review. It really, really, really helps me continue to grow this podcast. You can also check us out on YouTube, Talking Buffalo Podcast. I have some highlight clips up there pretty soon. Not yet, but pretty soon. I'm going to start having some video elements as well. Of course, last but not least, you can follow me on Twitter, at Tweets. Um, there all the time, man. If you want to find me, that's where I'm going to be. Don't bother texting me or emailing me, any of that stuff. Just look me up on Twitter. That's where I'll be. Thank you again so much for listening. I truly, truly appreciate each and every single one of you that are listening to this podcast. It really makes it worth it for me to do. I cannot thank you enough. 
Have a good week. Please, please, please continue to be safe. Do the right thing out there. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Friday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.